Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 5 of the My Life in Rugby interview series as we take a break from the Six Nations but fill the void with a really exciting interview. Our next guest is a former Munster out half who rose through the ranks from his time at Corcon. However, after just 11 games in three seasons, he was forced into an early retirement on medical grounds at just 25. Join me to look back on his career in the game and a fruitful life after rugby, his former player and current coach and pundit, Johnny Hollins. Welcome to the show, Johnny. Thanks very much. It's great to have you on. It's great to have guests of different backgrounds, but this is yet another guest of AIL distinction, I suppose. And we'll, we'll start on that lighter note because at the time recording... Uh, Con beat. They're sitting second in, in Division One A. They had a big win away at Trinity at the weekend. You happy enough how the season is going? Yeah, we are. I mean, like, I think we've learned a lesson that you know, if you don't go in the top two, you can win it from top four. But if you don't get, if you don't get to the top two, it's getting more and more difficult. Like going up to Terenure last year, we knew they were obviously a very good team um, and probably the farm team. But we got a, a late win against them down in Cork and then went back up to. Lakeland to take them on in the semi-final and it's just very difficult with a uh, an away atmosphere or a home atmosphere for them so you put yourself under pressure to, to get into the top two and it's all so close up there as well that it's uh, it's very interesting and pressurised like but uh, we are happy how we're going but obviously we know that we've you know we've we've probably left a few points out there but you know they all they balance out across the season anyway don't they you know I'm sure most teams will think they left they left points out there at some stage uh, even against us I'm sure Trinity will think they left points out there last weekend you know so uh, we are happy where we're going and how we're building things, but how you how happy you are really comes down to how you finish, isn't it? Suppose it does, and we'll kind of get into your time as as a player in a moment. But you know, the and it feels like the competitiveness across the leagues it, it has improved in recent years. It feels like it's a arguably a better product to use that term. From your vantage point, I know it's very concentric, but looking at the league as a whole, do you think it is in a better state than it was maybe ten years ago or so? Um, ten years ago, I'm, I'm not sure to be honest, but I'll tell you that I think it's very competitive. Like it's 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 more competitive than last season, you know. So even at that much, you know, Lansdowne had a bit of a dip last season, which I know they won't be proud of. So you can see that in their performances this year. Like they're 
they're fully back. And Ban Hinge fell just shy of it last year. And obviously they're they're at it again this year. And then the Cookies are, you know, your monster are sixth, aren't they? Um, which they won't be happy about because they were top four last year. So like you you've already gone through six teams, like when you talk about the top four plus Ballon Hinch, who are very hard to beat, and uh, your monsters who beat everyone anyway. Uh you've got the like six out of the ten there, and then you look at Trinity who are at the bottom and they just shouldn't be. Like I said it to some of their players coming off the pitch the last day, like they're not a they're bottom they're not a bottom of the league team. Um because they're full of quality and well coached and everything else. So like it's it's so so difficult. What a difficult league. Like, you know, you go to anyone and they can beat you. Um and you'd like to think you can beat everyone as well, which you know we have done, but we lost games as well. Like so it's it's a it's a ferociously um physical and competitive league which uh takes its toll on you when you're doing all the preparations and, and going week to week in the games. But that's what we love about it. It's um very exciting and I, you know the people that do follow it, um they're shouting from the rooftops about it. It's it's a it's a really good product and the more people see that, you know, I think the better uh, rugby will be in Ireland. Yeah, absolutely, because like it has been it has been pushed a little bit more in the last, you know, maybe since COVID, which is good to see. The the last couple of finals have been on Chichi Cahar and and got decent attendances crowd wise, but also got a, a decent viewership as well. And that's what we need to see because it is it's a good product. And at the end of the day, if we're gonna build rugby, there is more than just the international game to build up and and the provincial game to build up as well and and so much about the AIL and we spoke to Alex McHenry this season and Jack McCarthy last season about it is is helping players with the progression I know Paddy McCarthy for instance was on the field the last day for Trinity um and his brother Joe got a, a great run for Trinity before before his Ireland caps but from your personal experience bringing it back to when you were there how much did it help your growth especially in a position like 10 where where minutes are just so important so important. I think, like players need to play, you know. And I'm not someone that goes on, you know, out in the public and says like, give us all the players back and make them all play each week. I understand load management and player management, so I'm not going from that perspective. But as a player myself, you play better when you're consistently playing, and you, you know, you're not. You can be rusty every second, third week, like you know. So when you're playing and you build momentum, uh, I think you're better. When you aren't playing, um, you feel that as well, you know. So. I do think it's now I know there's there's frustrations and people have to go back, I suppose, to the to the AL and not play the games that they want to be playing with their province or, or, or otherwise. So I do understand both sides of it, but I just think like from my perspective, my development from UCC through to Carcon, you play a lot of games in the academy at the time now, I speak from my experience and not to say anything orally about those systems like that, you know, we learn a lot of our skills and you do go to senior games, and you're learning the landscape of rugby, but as an out half, you're not learning how to control the game each week. And when you get into an A game leading into potential senior games, then, you know, you do feel like you progress. But if you're not kicking corners or kicking a post under pressure in the league each week, then you're definitely losing out, you know. So I think, thankfully, you know, the the product is better. There's a lot more streaming. You know, people are there's more eyes on the game. Uh, but also, I think there's been a change in terms of how the provinces are dealing with players going back to play in the league, I think they, they do value it, you know, so there's, I understand when they're having to manage their load and the load is going higher and higher, but when there, when there are games available, particularly from my perspective, I deal at Munster, I suppose, and they're very encouraging around, you know, game time and players are available when they're available, they're with you and, uh, and, and that's great to see because it does bring the level of the whole AIL up. Like we, we know that like a top two, top four clash in the AIL is ferocious and there's a lot to be learned in that. It, it's not just that a, a provincial player comes back and they stand out all the time. They don't like, you know, you'd like to think they do most of the time, but they can be, they can be outplayed by, you know, 
uh, anyone in that league at times. So it, it is a very good product and, and we do get a benefit from it. Absolutely. And like, as you said, it is, you know, players come back for the provinces and a lot of players have been the same. They wanted the minutes. Like when I spoke to Alex, he was saying he just wants to play. Like he, he just wants to play. And, and some lads are like that. And then I know, you know, Jack Harthy, when he was at Buccaneers, he led them on a promotion charge. And like, as he said, 10 and kind of managing a game, it's as important to know how to just see a game out or just to win a game. We see it in the Six Nations, even at the highest level, just knowing how to feel your way through it and to get through it. And I suppose, like, as I said, at 10, it was probably crucial for you that you had this bank of experience before you even met it to Munster and even just playing Munster A games and so on, just to have something to rely upon. Yeah, absolutely. But even with Alex, when he's coming back to us, like I can... I can double down on that. He did want to play rugby all the time. And if he wasn't selected with, with Con, which happened rarely, but it did happen, um, he wasn't happy. Like, you know, it wasn't just, you know, they can do what they want. They'll be gone on at Munster or I can go back to training on Monday morning. That's not the case. Like, because, you know, he knew that he had to get his defensive reads right and his timing right and conditioning, playing the game. You can condition all you want and you can do top-ups after training and everything else, but you have to be making tackles and hitting rocks and everyone feels that, you know, you could go, go through the whole preseason on contact and the minute the contact comes in, it's like you've never done a preseason. It's the same in season with matches, you know. So, um, you know, he he was unbelievable for coming back with a good mind and uh, and and fitting into the system seamlessly. Um, and uh, I think we all needed that when we were playing. You just need games, and you need to be playing more consistently. Like, yeah, absolutely. And it's it's good that we have a competitive league there for for players to to come back into. Like that's ultimately a sign of a good system that's there, but. A part of the AIL lore is the kind of feel-good factor as well. And we did talk about this with Alex um, earlier in the season. So if there is any stories or anything like that that you want to maybe throw out there to just kind of talk about it, because I know we went down that kind of more naturally, but it is it is part of the fun. And as a coach, I suppose those away days and things like that are probably important for young players. But also when you were young, you know, the fact that you, you're heading off to Ban Hinch or you're heading to Dublin or whatever. Is there any standout memories for, from your time as a player or as a coach? I remember coming back from, uh, I think it was Ballymena, which I was at UCC. We played 1B. We didn't realise we actually had to win with a bonus point in the last game. I think Paddy Jackson played the same day. Uh, I don't know who else was with Ballymena, but we had to get a bonus point. I don't think we realised, which I only said to someone the other day, poor not to realise, wasn't it? But yeah. we got it anyway and we stayed up and we had a long bus trip home and a few lads were drug tested before we got home. So we had a good bit of time on the bus even waiting around. You know, we were finishing the club and we were waiting to go. Um, so it was a long, long trip down. And they're the trips that, you know, you speak about in the AL. Like, you know, you don't want to go to the North too many times just because it's all our, you know, it's it, it's players, they're amateurs, it's their spare time that they're playing for a hobby, you know. So going away for a long weekend is difficult sometimes at home. Um, but you do remember those times too. You know, when you get an away win on the road and you have a long trip home and you're with the lads that you've played with, there can be uh, good times had along the way down, you know, when you stop off in certain pubs on the way down and um, like that. I used to remember that trip down from Ballymena. That was a good few years back now. Um, but we do it definitely once a year. We two this year. So you'll always remember those trips. Um, but you'll remember different trips for different reasons. And, and the AIL, there's characters around the AIL like this, you know, need to be known to people. Maybe they don't at times, but <laughs> there's a lot, <laughs> a lot of characters, a lot of good rugby people are in the clubs, like, you know, um, and they, they, they keep the whole thing alive. Like there's a lot of volunteers in uh, in, in every club and uh, most stories will be about them. I know the the Energy uh, Aerial podcast goes on the road and, and those lads will try and uncover their characters. Like, you know, but uh, they're in every club. They're in every club. You know, we have enough of them and, and they're around everywhere. So I think there's, uh, there's plenty of stories to be told. But 
maybe not from me to <laughs> from me to the wider public. But no, the, the the long bus trips, plenty of points if that's what you're into. And uh, and these days I let the lads go off in a different direction. I go home and uh, <laughs> and keep my family life some bit balanced. But uh, yeah, I let them to their devices these days. Yeah, might be, might be better off in some regard, especially it's <laughs> with the state that some of them end up in. I know Alex told a story about spraying champagne around the, the streets of Dublin. And as much as I thought that's different, it's probably not the first or the last person to do it either in, in different yeah. places as well. Because I, I'm out of touch now with the with the current stories, maybe. I, like I said, I, I leave them at it and uh, <laughs> I leave them tell their own stories. I don't want to get involved in that anymore. Fair enough. You don't want to be dropped either by telling the coach a story and then not being too happy either, I suppose. Yeah, but... don't worry. There's a, you're allowed to be yourself most places, aren't you? So I don't mind if they have stories to tell once they don't get themselves in too much trouble. That's good as well. But um, we'll move on to Munster as well because that's where most people would recognise you from. That's where you rose to prominence, met your debut 2013. Now, it's hard to believe it's that long ago, but... Like it was a slow start to life. You like you only had one start across your first two seasons, but I suppose what was the first few years like with the academy and with the senior side? Because ultimately, like that, there was a couple of injuries in there, and there was a lot of depth in there. In the when you were a ten, yeah, like there's um possibly a lot of frustration around those years. You know, you a lot of doubt, uh, self doubt, um, overriding doubt around whether it's the right decision, whether you can keep going because you're. I think around that time, you know, maybe it's a little bit different now. It's getting small, bit younger, but not even like you know, people are pounding at the door all like for for a couple of seasons now still. But um, you know, your friends are starting to go through college as well, and they're coming out the other side of it, getting real jobs, you know, and you're still trying to still trying to become this professional athlete. So I think like it was my first start in 2013. I finished college in, in 2013. So like that's exactly what I'm talking about. People are going on to be, you know, trainee accountants, and they're starting to make a bit of money, and you're you're still grafting away and. I suppose the conversation happens at home as well that you know is this the right thing to do can you keep going like this and um i think most of the time the answer is yes and you know you you love if someone doubted you because you think you can actually get on and do it but you don't know yourself you know so there is a little bit of that involved in, in the, the formative years but it's all very very worth it when you can make a little breakthrough um because you can't replace it i'll tell you now like the conversation will go on and i'm sure we'll talk about that a small bit but um the further I am away from it, the more I know you can't replace it. And and your intention isn't to replace it. Like once you're out of it, you're out of it. You you won't replace it. It's not going to be the same. So if you go chasing that, it's going to be a long life. But um, it's very, very hard to get the same feeling back of, you know, running out in Thomond Park or the Aviva or elsewhere. Um, and all eyes are on you. The whole, the whole week is built up to that. Every conversation you have, you know, whether you like it or not, is going to be about that. And, uh, and it's a special place to be, you know. So like when you do break through that mold and get through the frustrating years they're they're there on purpose like even the my time in the sub academy and the academy it's the nts or the pts now and and into a full academy after that they're there to weed people out see who's strong enough to get through it and see if they can develop from a rugby perspective first but you know also from a commitment um from a, a self-awareness self-doubt uh confidence level can they get through and actually break through into the the real game and it is the real game after that you know it's very different from getting into the academy, doing a gym session at seven o'clock, doing a bit of skills, going home for your lunch, maybe doing a bit of kicking in the afternoon. It's very, very different in a, in a real full setup where the pressure is on every day and Alice is on you every day. And, um, you know, I'd, I'd always say it's worth it. You can't replace it, but it, it can be quite tough at the start and people don't realise that, you know, they think you're just going to get a massage or going to throw a ball around. It's you're, you're going for a massage and you don't want to because it's a drive away and you could be doing something else and uh, you don't know if you're good enough to be doing all these things, you know, but, um, 
but absolutely I'll come back to the fact that it's it, it, it's all worked it most of the time anyway. yeah I suppose and like it, it's weird how how your time at Munster unfolded because nearly half of the games you played were in the back end of 2015-2016 season and I suppose some of that is just the way of life and the way of the injuries and everything but just because you mentioned it there do you remember much of of that season I know it wasn't a fruitful one for Munster but just from your own perspective of, of finally getting on the field after basically being injured for most of the season before I remember it vividly enough and I suppose because it was the end I, I remember it all and people still talk to me about it which is funny like you know um, but before that like I think I had my first start in Tom Park I got a, a dunt on the shoulder and I went off and then you know you, you have to go back into your A games and get another opportunity and you get one or two like I remember laughing with or maybe at myself with Simon Mannix like the, the first game I came on was Cardiff away and I came on for 10 minutes but I didn't touch the ball because we defended for most of it I can't remember if we won or lost I think I think we won but we were defending and um, I came on the next week against Connacht for like two minutes but I got to kick the ball to touch but not in play so that's what he was laughing uh, at a, with me or at me um, so it does take a while like you know you see these people breaking through and you don't realise you know what actually goes into that and the frustrations and Obviously, I didn't. I tore my hamstring off the bone fairly nicely in in the time in between. So, like, I had thirteen months out of the game, and then from that, you're trying to build yourself back up. And um, I played a development game over Musgrave Park against the Irish under twenties, and I think was I twenty four at that stage. And um, young fellas were saying, "Who's the older lad playing ten? Like, you know, that was the way it was. You were you were passing at that stage at twenty four. So, like, my my career probably only started to kick off, and then it was done because I went from that development game into an A game I think either in Leeds or up in Christians and then or the other way around I think we went up to Leeds Carnegie if that's what they were still called and we were they called that and uh, it was a sandy pitch so I was sore from that and then we went up to Christians and it was bogged like Musgrave Park was and I was sore from that but I, I had an excuse for it and, and then I went through a run of games you know so we played Dragons in Tolman Park uh, I think I played against Zebra uh, played against Dragons and then we went up to Connacht and uh, I got a bit of backing from Axel to be fair to him um, leading into the Leinster game and then we had uh, Edinburgh in Musgrave Park which is class because it's only a couple of minutes over the road from my, my home house and where I am now actually as well and um, the Scarlet's away in Thomond Park finished the season uh, I didn't play particularly well that game to be fair and uh, and I just thought I'd get back into pre-season get my leg together get a bit of a break I came back in the middle of the season you're obviously not conditioned and there's a whole lot of different factors going on but unfortunately that was the end of it but I remember quite a lot around the actual maybe six game run in, in between that um, getting a, getting a nod from Axel getting up to the Aviva even Connacht away we got a bit of a beating but I had a few moments that I was quite proud of you know getting a, a bit of a line break offload to Zebo he scored and you still remember those bits and pieces that you tell yourself that you were actually good enough to be there but unfortunately it wasn't long enough I, I was at that Connacht game um, it was the year Connacht for another one win the league and I still felt you know Maybe it was naivety because the season wasn't going well. I was like, oh, we'll, we'll be the ones to take them down. And ultimately, yeah. <laughs> it, it came down to that Scarlet's game needing to win to get into Europe because yeah. so the season goes. But that's that's just the way it is, I suppose. Because I know, like looking back, Tyler Blaindown spent a lot of that season injured as well, for instance. And he was in the squad there. But I, I do want to touch that really quickly before the injury because Ian Keatley was in the 10 group, Tyler Blaindown and yourself. You're coaching AIL level. Ian Keatley is with... I think he's at AIL as well as with the Ireland under twenties and Tyler Blaindell is the Hurricanes coach. Like what would those lads like to share? I know it's not an actual room like in, in NFL, but to share a dressing room with because for three lads from the same group to all go into coaching, must, there must be something in them. 
I think it's just a position that, that comes with it, isn't it? Like you're supposed to be a general on the pitch and you're you're supposed to be thinking about the game through different people's eyes anyways in that half, you know, whereas I think good players around the pitch will do that anyway, but not everyone does that, you know. Your tight head prop wants to look at the scrum and go forward, hopefully, you know. So and uh, and and the way the game is developing, they're doing a lot more now, obviously. But you know, tens, maybe nines get a good um kind of view on how the whole game works. But as, as a coach, you have to zoom out even further and see how the game runs above people, you know. So I think it is a good kind of starting point in the coaching about understanding different parts of the game. So that's probably why we all went into it. But you know, those lads were great and. Fortunately, I think for me, I was injured at different times to Tyler, so I never fully competed with him because I already felt like a bit of a coach's favourite, but for good reasons. I don't say that spitefully. He was, uh, his knowledge was unbelievable. I always said he, when he was injured and I was sitting as a player who was possibly even playing that weekend, he was the one up the front with his notebook out telling us how the game plan should work. You know, maybe that was when I thought I wasn't retired yet and it was pre-season under Razzie. I can't remember, but I remember him doing it and feeling like, Jesus, this guy is really the starter, isn't it? And it might not be me. And um, because his knowledge was huge, like he was so good. And um, I remember saying he's going to be a coach and a very good one as well if it doesn't work out for him. And you can see that already, like he's been with Tonga at international level, hasn't he? And uh, yeah. the Hurricanes now. So like he's obviously gone on to a good level of coaching fairly quickly. Uh, but I'm not surprised by that. But like even with Keats, like Keats was very good to compete with. Even when I was trying to compete with him, he, he would have been giving me uh, tips around my kick in and this I remember a certain lunge that I had into the ball and he was like you can't be doing that lunge like it's taking your power away and he was coaching me through that so those like you know I'm not surprised that they're coaching because they were thinking about the game all the time anyway um, and uh, Keats was was more lighthearted, definitely like he's still a bit of messing in him I'd say um, but uh, yeah it, it's funny I think it just comes with the comes with the territory of the position you'll get people as a 9 or a 10 that are just interested in the game and I, I didn't even think I would coach, to be honest. I didn't think it was for me, but I probably felt like I'd unfinished business to a degree and just fell into it a small bit. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually have a few friends who've played for Bowls in recent years, who play, or one or two actually playing for Bowls this season, and they do rave about Ian Geekley as a coach and as a kind of a person as well, and there is that element. And I know when, when Tyler retired, that was one of the things that was coming out of Munster. It's like, don't be surprised if he goes into coaching. And it's eventually what happens in the dressing room, you know, seven days a week will probably end up happening down the line as well. I suppose that is kind of an element to it, but just to go back to the injury, because it is kind of a main, a main talking point, unfortunately, like you missed, I think you said 13 months. Um, it, It's it's obviously really tough, but just during that 2015-16 season, when you did get a run of games, did you ever have a concern that this injury will come back to bite you? Was that something that was on your mind? Or how how was that kind of period of coming back, like when you had a long-term injury? I probably had a big doubt some at some stage in the middle of the rehab. I remember saying to Chloe, my wife, um, you know, what happens if I'm going to have to retire? And I remember she was kind of like, Jesus, don't say that. Don't mention that word. And why are you even talking about that? We didn't actually believe that I was going to be retiring. Like, you know, um, and it was probably just one of those days where I had a lot of doubt. And I was saying, I could retire from this thing. Like, what if it doesn't work out? We probably spoke about it for 30 seconds. Like, you know, that's as much doubt as I had. And then when I went back, um, I probably didn't really deal with what was happening at the time because I had a bad tendinopathy in my in my tendon. I thought they were all attached. It turns out they weren't. So no wonder I did. It all makes sense after the fact. But um, even with the physios, like who worked very very closely with me, um, you know, under Colin Coakley initially, with Keith Thorne, would have been going through a lot of what I was doing in my return to play, and it was kind of like a case of let's keep our heads down. You're getting a game. Just get on with it, and uh, we'll, we'll deal with that afterwards. You know, and and that's possibly how we went with it. But even to the point where. Like I said to you, I just thought, 
you know, I, I was completely blind to the fact that I would retire because I said, and I would have said it to Chloe, like, no, just get through. I know it's sore. Like, Alan Walters was there. And I remember we were in Musgrave Park here before the Edinburgh game. And I, I nearly pulled out of the game. Um, I just couldn't warm up my tendon. I just couldn't get my hamstring going. And it took me a half an hour, I'd say. But he was like, go in, do another warm up. Uh, just take your time, do another one and just see if you can get going. And I got going and I did and I played the game. And I, I thought I played a decent game that day. But I actually didn't train against um No, sorry, I did train once in the lead up to Scarlets, but I was getting sore and sore after every game. Like, and um, after that Edinburgh game, we were week on week. So the Tuesday, me and Keats were told we shouldn't train, but Axel was like, "Well, one of you has to," um, because I can't train without a ten. So unfortunately, I was the one that had to train. Um, but I think I didn't train on the Thursday. I didn't kick all week, and uh, I might as well not kick in the game either because I was fairly ropey off the tee. Um. And then that was the last one, but I didn't think it was going to be my last one. I knew I struggled. I missed, it was just a really poor game. I missed three tackles on Hadley Parks, which were just straight on. I know he's a big player, but like... There's, there's no shame to that, to be honest. Like <laughs> No shame in that, but I would have been annoyed by it. Uh, I didn't kick well. Off, like It was one of those days where you're kicking the tee and not, you're nearly looking up to see where it went. I actually said to someone the other day, only I, I, I sold at the ball in my last game, like in Tom and Park along the 22. I went to clear it and I probably wasn't organised enough. Then pulled out of it, soloed it by mistake, offloaded to Francis Eilie, he knocked it on, and I was like, what am I actually doing? Like, you know, so I, I survived a lot longer in that game than I thought I should have. But like I went I went to um Kim, my sister in law, Chloe's sister's birthday party that night, and I just in the season, you know, dust yourself off. I wasn't too worried about anything. And uh and I just thought I'd go away on holidays, get myself back, do a preseason, get my proper contract and kick on as a rugby player. And uh it was actually funny you mentioned Keats because we were in preseason and, and Razzie had come in that year. So then things changed. The sessions got heavier. The days got longer. And I just couldn't keep up with the, the load on my hamstring, which makes sense now, but it didn't at the time. And uh, one of the training sessions, maybe four or five weeks in, um, we were playing and I, I, I think I had a passing ball in the deck. And Keats intercepted it or picked it up off the ground. And I just remember thinking, he's not getting through anyway. There's no way he can score a try on my watch. you know. So I went to get after him. And I tightened my hamstring to such a low level, I couldn't even say I, I strained it, but I tightened it definitely. So I, they told me I had to take a week off and um, and rehab that. So when I was coming back on the pitch, I did a fitness test the following week. And, you know, longest story short, I did the fitness test and they were like, yeah, that's fine. So I went back to my normal level of hamstring soreness, not the strain. And I, I remember frustratingly said, saying, I think it was to PJ Wilson, who's in, uh, is he with Cardiff now? He, he was with Bath for a while as well, but he, uh, PJ's brilliant. He, I remember saying to him, am I going to address the real elephant in the room here? What's going on? Like, you know, am I going to tell you what's really going on in my hamstring? And uh, maybe it just came all out in a bit of a frustration. But he said, yeah, yeah, go and speak to the physios, tell them what's going on. And I, I remember having a really tough moment uh, on the pitch. Dunnick Ryan was there around the kit van. He was injured at the time. And I half broke down, to be honest. I was like, I have to, I have to deal with this. And I, I probably knew somewhere within my head, but I was just, you know, that conversation I said with the physios earlier on. Just keep the head down and say nothing kind of a thing. It's all starting to work out now, but it really wasn't like, you know, so that was the start of, that was the beginning of the end. I, I had a bit of, I uh, got some scans done and spoke to different specialists, but um, we didn't really know I was going on in my hamstring. It was, it was game over from that stage. Do you think an element of that kind of, uh, you could say it's just wanting to train and all that, and it is, but do you think some of it is just a case of, well, you know, as a rugby player, you're going to be hurt to sm- some small degree. Do you think that that's all it was that was kind of, Stop, maybe stopping you from going to the physio just thinking well I'm going to be sore in some regard I think it was just the nature of my injury too like tendons are funny you know and they they, they do get cranky you know so like if you overload a tendon it gets sore if you underload a tendon it gets sore it's just a really awkward injury 
and I suppose because we didn't know the real mechanics of mine and that it wasn't a lot of it wasn't attached or a lot of some of them weren't attached um that it just felt like a tendonopathy that wasn't really a big risk so it wasn't that I didn't speak to people about it like I would have been quite open with a bit of pain I might have hid some but I was quite open actually about how I was and the physios would have been trying to read between the lines there and like yeah we need to offload them here build it back up but I had done the whole thing of like I went back to pre-season the year earlier and I was like I'm good to go and they were like you're not and I was like I'm doing a full pre-season and they said you're not doing day one even so I had to go back to baseline and build back up again that took a couple of months so I was really really frustrated in the, in the middle of it um, and there was probably a couple of those moments but so like there was a part of it going, why is my tendon sore and why can't I do these things? But like I could sprint full out and I could play all the time, but it was just deteriorating week on week to the point where like I did retire. I went playing like five a side with my own friends and um, I was deteriorating in five a side as well. Like, you know, so it was like it just got sore and sore once a week. I could barely move by the end of it. So, it, you know, it, it obviously was the right decision. But even now, like I might do something less so really these days because my knee gets a bit sore, but like, you know, I might do something and I'd feel really good and I'd need a bit of pain at times to feel like you made the right decision, like, you know, you weren't making it up. A small bit of pain isn't bad for you, but, um, yeah, it definitely was something I had to address at that stage. Yeah, absolutely. But how does that then, that kind of discussion, the, the idea of going to specialists, how does that come about? Does that kind of start with the physio and, like, like ultimately you retired in, in September, which is so close to the start of the season. So, like, there was obviously, with the discussions going through, the duration of pre-season or how does that work yeah they were really like i suppose we were well maybe the middle of pre-season we started discussion like i knew i was retiring from the middle of august um which you have to wait for a report to come back from the specialist and well, i'd seen a, a second specialist so obviously that was probably the start of august and the the one week ha- hamstring strain was probably the middle of july you know what i mean so yeah. um so i probably knew from the middle of july that i was on uh hiding to nothing or I, I knew I was at the start of something and when I saw the first specialist it was a case of well if this is a new injury you're probably okay but if this is coming from the old injury you're in big big trouble like and that's how the conversation went so I think he rang me uh, and I I just knew you know so he was like my advice is to find a different career basically and um, obviously you're not going to listen to the first fellow that tells you that so we went and found someone else and uh, and he told me the same thing in a different way a uh, different mechanism but same outcome you know so you can go and find more and more specialists if you want to. Maybe someone will give you something that you can cling on to, but at the end of the day, you're clinging on to it. And it wasn't, you know, so it does start with the physio and it escalates from there through specialists and consultants. And um, unfortunately, at that stage, it's out of your hands then. It's, it's, it strikes me as being a short time frame. Like you you probably get the first proper tweak in July. You kind of have the decision made by mid-August. Like you're still close to the start of the season. Like was it then... Obviously, it wasn't a major shock over by the end of the month when it's finally announced. But does, is it kind of a shock to the system? The fact that you know it's like, well, I'm essentially on borrowed time now at this stage. Well, I thought I was a starting monster at half, or at least I finished the season before like that. I know nothing is guaranteed, so I that's why I said like you know I thought I'd put in a good performance from September until mid October. Hopefully, catch a bit of an eye and go and negotiate my next contract pre Christmas. Like that's genuinely what I was thinking. Um, it was a very fast turnaround, you know, especially for people around me, I would say, because they probably wouldn't know the day to day. Yeah. Me being sore and the conversations I have with the physios. And then you come home, like, do you really want to talk with that again or, you know, cause people any concern? So, like, I think that's possibly the hardest part of the whole thing is having to feel like you're leaving people down around you. Like, Chloe wouldn't have felt like I was leaving her down. She probably felt like I've been put out of my misery at the best of times anyway. But um, certainly my, my family, like, I just thought, you know, 
they went through the whole thing with me as well and they would have gotten a lot out of um the, the half season before that finally he's getting somewhere you know and finally we can shout from the rooftops and uh and then you feel like you're kind of letting people down as well so there's a lot goes into it there's a massive psychological blow to to retirement like that um but like i think we were all quite realistic about it and and um i think i was anyway you know but it was it was it was horribly short as a turner and considering you know i, I just finished the season before i say people don't understand how i retired after like you know i'm, I'm sure there's plenty of conversations where people say sure didn't he play in the scarlet's game at the end of last season what happened between then and now like you know so yeah. i'm very aware of that and also being so close to starting a new season under a kind of a very exciting time in munster new hpc uh new coaches like Razzie and jack um different way of doing things and you know, I was I was turning the car around. I had actually just moved to Limerick, um, because of the HPC. So I spent a couple of weeks there and decided this isn't good enough. I'm going to turn the car around. Um, so mm. it was very sudden. It was very sudden. Even like telling my own friends, I felt was a hard part of it. I said my own friends, like my close group at home, my 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 first WhatsApp group. You know, mm. it's uh, I remember telling them and pulling out of the, the house I was renting in with Darren O'Shea and Francis Ailey, and fucking I cried the whole way home. Like genuinely, it mm. was it was a really hard thing to do. Um, and it was more so the reality of it. It was done then, you know. So, it, it, like, that was, I was still waiting on a, a report and all the rest of it, but we all knew that it was done and that that was hard, you know. Yeah, uh, but it, it must be because you are, like, only 25, 26 years of age at the time. It's not like you're, you know, 10 year veteran at this stage and you've kind of done it all and you've seen it all. Like, it's no one your own age would be kind of retired, or at least it's very rare. It's, you know, a dime a dozen kind of scenario, but just because that season is, is obviously well known in Munster circles. Like that was the year that, that Axel passed um, and he would have done a lot of work with the Academy around, around the time that you were kind of coming through. What was, what was Anthony Foley's impact on you? And, you know, you can go whichever way you want with the conversation. I understand it's very personal, but what was his impact on you? Yeah, he actually had a lot more of an impact than I would have thought at the time. You know, there was a game that I didn't know how much it stood for. It was a it was a NA game away at Esher, I think, um, in the UK. And for some reason he brought me, you know, he brought all the the academy around the time of like Killer, Dave Foley, uh Sean Henry, that Bowes group and uh, and the rest, like you know, there's a I don't know, was Tommy O'Donnell around there. A lot of good players. Um and I was brought. I said, what's going on here? But I went. So I was driving a family car. Uh, I parked across the road from UL. I didn't know where to go. Like, I should have driven into UL, but I was like, you can't park in there. So I was all over the place. I, was, I felt like I was so young. And uh, and he gave me a shot to go away, like a plane over to the UK to play a game with fellas I don't know, like who were all kind of pros or getting to be pros. And a lot of them were afterwards. So I was completely out of my depth. But he started that and... You know, even I'd hurt my shoulders when I, when I was playing at UCC and uh, Axel made sure that I got into the Munster physios, Colm Coakley at the time as well, who dealt with my hamstring initially when I was a senior player. Um, and I remember him telling me, like, you know, Axel wants me to see you, so you must be up to something. And uh, so that's probably, I didn't realise what he was doing in the back in the background for a while for me. And that would have kind of gone into calling me up to senior sessions. And that's all an opportunity for people to see you and people that are doing the academy contracts for them to know that you're around. So there was a lot of foundations done um, around Axel's time in the academy. But then, you know, it all came full circle when he gave me the nod ahead of Keats. And, um, you know, it was one thing playing the Zebra game at home and all that, but he gave me the, the Leinster game. And that was the one, you know, that was the one that people thought, right, he is the starting 10. No, you're not the starting 10 forever. So I'm not saying like that was my career. But I think that was a game where he didn't have to do that. It would be easy and a very easy conversation to go with the senior player. But he said, fuck it, this guy is the one. And... Uh, 
and you'll never forget that. Like, you know, and I, it, it was a very weird situation when I was gone for Munster and unfortunately the accident was gone from the rest of us. It was like, you, you talk about quick turnarounds. That was, that was, a, that was a weird one. Yeah. Do you kind of still remember that weekend? Like the, the, the impact? Cause I know all Munster fans kind of remember where they were, unfortunately. And like that, that entire week and the, the Munster community coming together was, it was fitting for the man in, in particular, but do you kind of remember that, that week and that, that weekend prior and, I suppose the kind of did you come together kind of as as squads and as players to to talk about Axel? Unfortunately, I was I was elsewhere. I was on the fist. <laughs> so <laughs> I was actually after going to Newcastle. My one of my good friends in in college in Sunderland and John Egan, who we had grown up with, was playing with Brentford. I think at the time up in Newcastle. So we made a weekend of it. And I remember the Sunday after two heavy days, uh, two heavily controlled days, but we we had two good days of it. And uh, Rory Scanner rang me and. My reaction wasn't great. I was, I was so far away, and we were obviously fairly hungover. And I remember texting him back, and I said, "I'm sorry, there. I, I, I was, you know, I was a world away there when you when you were telling me because the senior players and Rory was in a really good place at the time, a very young senior player had to do a bit of divvying out of like you know telling people they were close to the squad. But I just retired in September, like you said, and I think it was that October in October. Yeah. Um. So um, I was still around the squad a bit, and I remember going back up to them for funeral and the Glasgow game and all the rest of it so like it was a there was a good closeness there but you know I was obviously a little bit detached from it not being there all the time but I do remember it quite vividly because I regretted my my reaction to it every day for the rest of the time until now you know and uh and I I, I also regret it I said it to Chloe a few times I never I never really thanked Axel for what he did for me like and that was a massive regret as well that you know you need to you need to understand that you have to thank the people to do things for you and he was a big one that you know he I think there was an interview when I played the Zebra game. He, I didn't see it, and people were telling me that he was saying, you know, this fellow's playing with a smile in his face, and I was probably faking half of it, but I was enjoying myself, and he was the reason why. And um, and you don't you don't know when the last time is that you speak to a person. So I was like, geez, I really should have thanked him. And, and that was a regret. But, like, obviously I wasn't going to thank him at the time, you know. I was, But I didn't speak to him from my after my retirement. I probably should have had a good conversation with him around what he had done for me, and I didn't do that. And that was a big regret for me as well. I suppose hindsight is is twenty twenty and all that because yeah. like it is a shock, you know. That's that's the reality of life in some ways. But you know, the the result ultimately like that monster group came together, and and their season is, is a different story. That you know, maybe if one of the players from that group was was on, we we talk about that. But just really quickly, you worked with Razi Rasmus and Jack Nina for a very short time. Felix Jones, Jerry Flannery also were at Monster at the time, like. I know we talked about we're tired of playing down Neen Keatley as well, but there was some amount of rugby intellect in that in the HPC at the time, wasn't there? As it turns out, like you know, and Razzie seemed special, all right, like in one sense, but you didn't really know. I didn't know what he was going to go on to. I, I didn't know much about him before that, you know. So like, yeah. but you knew when you were talking to them, like Jack was, and is a guy that just captures the imagination, like you know, uh, a very South African personable way about them, like and and they've continued that, you know. So like, um. We still speak in Carcon, especially when Duncan was coaching with me last year. Like we'd speak a lot about what Jack would do and his ways around the defence and everything else. And uh, I retired under Razzy. Like I knew the man six or eight weeks, you know, and he was dealing yeah. with a very the topic with me. So, and he had retired through injury and everything. So, like there was a there was a closeness there, all right? But I, you know, I I was sorry that I didn't get to spend more time around that environment. The HPC was new. I was going up there for a bit afterwards, maybe clinging on to the whole thing too. But, you know, I was I had reasons to be up there in my head at least and uh, being around the nice setup and everything. But um 
yeah, you don't realize like the Felix and and um, Jerry Flannery were were going to go on to the things that they're going on to as well. But it's underpinned massively by work ethic. Like you know, if you look at Felix, um, I know the stories going now as well that his laptop is full. You know that he's <laughs> he just had so much rugby on his laptop. He he's insane. Like he's absolutely insane. Um, I spoke to him a bit after my retirement, right? But and like he was, I think they had a, they had a, a baby on the way. He was. Um, he was renovating a house which was an old castle of some form you know like in Limerick and he was just taking on project after project and I'd say he was up half the night but like I don't you know he's probably doing that the same, the same thing with his rugby and Flaz another fella who's just so so invested like you know and it doesn't surprise you when people like that are, are successful yeah, you, you do need to have that kind of ability to find the extra 10-15% like, and it's such a cliche but it is so true and like every time like I know when Alex McHenry spoke about Felix, he's like, what you see, not what you see isn't what you get, but there is that element. Like everyone thinks he's soft-spoken and, you know, kind of, he is just a rugby nerd and a great coach because of it. Like, and that's, that's he's a great that, sign. He's not that softly spoken. He's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely insane. Nobody's like, he's so invested and he's actually like, you know, defense coach sitting in the stands now in England. He's going to look very serious. He's great crack, you know, um, but he's, uh, I remember when I retired, when, when I came back from my injury after my retirement, or sorry, before my retirement, he was after retiring with his neck. And uh, I felt really guilty about it for some reason. I don't know why. I don't know what came into my mind, but I just thought he gives everything to every session. And I actually had this kind of mantra myself that like, what would Felix do if he was in my position? Because I remember thinking when I got back, I was splashing in puddles, running through wet wet ground and lads were kind of jogging in from the HPC, kind of curling up, like not really wanting to train in the, in the wet. And I remember thinking I took so much of that for granted, like, and uh, yeah. and I I don't know when I kind of fell into this thing, like, you know, oh, you get to do it again, whereas Felix doesn't, and I felt really bad for him. So I remember thinking, like, you know, anytime I struggled, or I used to write a lot of notes at the time, a lot of journals and things, and I would always write down, what would Felix do? He'd wake up in the morning and go hammer and tongs for the day with everything he could do to get better, like, you know, so that kind of molded my return from injury as well. Little does he actually know about it, but it did, it did mold what I did afterwards. It's it's testament to himself and to Jack and Razi and Jerry and, and Axel and the likes that a lot of interviews that you do with kind of your age group of players or anyone who's around Munster at the time speaks so highly of them and you do wish them further success. Um, there is a slight element with Felix that you wish him further success outside the Six Nations, maybe in the <laughs> autumn or whatever. But, you know, not, not this year. <laughs> maybe some yeah. We'll kind of cross that bridge where we go into it in a few weeks' time, but... Just to kind of wrap up on, on the injury talk, um, and it's been great to kind of get you to open about it because a lot of people wouldn't know, but like you obviously, as you said, you did a degree in the bag and all that. So how important were Munster? And I know there's pathways involved now with the IRFU system for getting players like yourself adjusted to life after rugby so quickly. Because again, it is that major shock to the system. Yeah, it's funny. It's, it's a hard thing because like I was offered maybe services and someone to talk to and all that kind of stuff and I was I'd probably still like that and I'd deal with it myself you know kind of a thing or I'll, I suppose I'm, I'm quite open in terms of how I answer any questions or how I speak about things like I don't think I hide a whole lot but like I would also try and internalize a few things so like I didn't do it at the time but I would have I would have spoken to my family and Chloe quite a bit um and then going on to like the kind of professional side of things you know maybe I don't remember fully but like the Irupa was the um or the, the players' association at the time, and uh, and there are definitely things you can lean on. But Derby Rourke was with Irupa at that time, and I would have spoken to her a lot in my kind of academy time. And and after I retired, I remember meeting her. Uh, so there was definitely conversations had, and meeting Claire Cook over in the office, and and everything else. But 
you know, one thing about whether Munster were the crowd that helped me through or what, but rugby helped me through because, you know, Carcon were so good to me that, you know, I'm still there, obviously. And that's how that worked. Like, you know, you'd be, and I, I know I'm, I'm longer in the toot now as well that I know that they're helping people because it's mutually beneficial, but at the same time, they're still helping you, you know, so they obviously wanted a coach and, and I wanted a life outside of rugby, which didn't really work because they dragged me back into rugby, but like <laughs> they, they helped me to get a job. Uh, when I retired, I was doing a, um, a postgrad in nutrition and, um, I just came from a meeting in, in Carcon and it's all the same people, like, you know, besides Jerry Holland, unfortunately, but all the same people helping you through. It was Jerry that got me on the phone to commit to coaching with the under 20s when I thought I was putting out of it, you know, and he, I said, no, no, I'm going to go. He said, can you do more? And I said, I'm going to do less. <laughs> he was like, don't do less, you know. So it's funny how things come around, you know, and, and uh, definitely the rugby community through Munster and Carcon help you to get back on your feet. And it's a, it's a strong, a very strong community, very strong club game like that's why the AIL is so important as well it's, it's about rugby but it's actually about the network of people um and uh and life like isn't it not to get too deep but it is like it helps you through you play for the club and you commit to the club but the club commits back to you as well so there's a lot in that yeah absolutely um we're, we're touching the nutrition in a second because obviously when you do go back into coaching are you kind of is it ever a case that you're kind of seeking that competitive edge to things because I know a lot of players speak about that that they, they, they just kind of miss winning and losing sometimes does coaching kind of help that when you were when you're going straight back into it with under twenties and then onto the the senior side with Con? To a degree, but like we won an AIL in 2019, and I remember thinking that's what I wanted, like to win something again, and it wasn't the same. Like it was a it was a massive come down and a reality check. That that's why I say you won't replace it. It wasn't the same. Like I wasn't in the middle of it. I know I wasn't in the middle of things as a player anyway. I'm not that kind of person, but I wanted to be as the coach. I wanted to let my hair down, and I remember thinking this is their time, like, you know, it's not mine at all. And you do get satisfaction from it, but it's not the same kind of satisfaction as letting the hair down as a player. Um, but, you know, the, the competitive edge doesn't go. And uh, to my detriment, I'm I'm quite competitive. So, like, whether it's a kicking competition, I don't do as much of it since I've become the head coach in Con because, you know, you've time to, you need time to talk to players and all the rest of it. And I'd probably do a little bit less kicking than I'd like to do. But um you find any way at all to be competitive with people like you know so it does it does fill a bit of a gap and it gives you something but um in, in the best way possible it's not the same you know it's not supposed to be the same i think the, the quicker you get to that realization um there's a bit of acceptance in that you know that it, it's not going to be the same as you putting your boots on but i when i say it's not the same it doesn't mean it's not as satisfying like i love seeing fellas um do something that you've helped them with or something that you can see them doing themselves. Like it doesn't even have to be your influence for it to be satisfying. It's just seeing the development of people is, um, like I said, it's a different thing altogether, but you get a lot of satis- satisfaction from it too. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's good to see as well. But you're also, you mentioned the nutrition side of things, you know, you did your, your master's in, in nutrition. How does that come about? Was this something that was always like an interest and a passion or, or how does that go? And for people who might know, what does a, a job in that sector look like? A job in that sector is fairly messy now. <laughs> There's bits and pieces in, in, all over the place. But like I'm um, with Cork Footballers the last six years and I'm up in Tipperary Hurling now just this year. But I'm working alongside Catherine Norton, who was my nutritionist or dietitian when I was playing in Munster. And she saw firsthand how insane I was about my own nutrition. So here we are full circle again. But like, and I'm with the Cork ladies as well. But I, I'm, I'm self-employed. I deal with, you know, private clients and different bits and pieces around that corporate talks club talks etc etc but like it's uh it's a bit more higgly piggly <laughs> if that's a word um now you can make it very streamlined too but that's just the way 
I've gone about it. Um, but yeah, I was I was um, I was a small player anyway, so I I was always a bit more interested in my nutrition, having to bulk up and everything else. But I think as well from a younger age, like my my mom in particular and her her dad, my granddad was um, quite health conscious, you know, and small things, brown bread instead of white bread, when that wasn't as kind as as um, as uh, straightforward. It wasn't the the main thing in the house, like you know, and and there they were making changes and then when I was a teenager maybe my mom really got into that you know she'd be quite health conscious and brown rice instead of white rice and plenty of good quality food at home and my dad started cooking in as well a bit more so that kind of fed into the whole thing so like there was a lot of influence at home too and uh, I suppose the sporting side of me that was the part that I was into as well like performance and nutrition and everything else so there's there's a, there's a whole lot of reasons why but I didn't really know because when I was throwing your leaving cert and you're a sports person you think you're going to do something in sport and is it going to be physio or something else like and I think I had that realization that sport isn't uh isn't a career like you know and I was probably wrong to a degree but like you know get over yourself you're not going to kick a ball forever and uh go into a business degree like you know and here I am heavily involved in sport again so it came it came around a bit funnily but uh yeah nutrition was the one that you know I became quite uh, interested and obsessed with so that's why I went on and did something that I enjoy even though there are challenging parts to it. Did it help when you were kind of doing your, your I suppose they call it fur, a further education to give us the former term that you kind of had that backdrop of having been in a pro environment where nutrition is so important? Massively yeah I think like being in a dressing room helps you to know how to deal with people that are in a dressing room and understand the dressing room kind of um the ways around it you know how people feel in certain situations not to say you get everything right but you cop on a little bit quicker um because you know how they feel but I like having been a player and dealing with players I'd like to think there's a bit of um aligned thinking there and also being a coach you know you'd like to know you'd like to think you know like how people are feeling in different situations so like when I'm dealing with the manager in Cork or whatever else, like you, you like you might get things wrong the odd time, but you'd know not to step on their toes, not to get too involved at, at certain times, and they do kind of uh, complement each other quite a bit. But you know, they're obviously different roles, but it does it does align. And like I'm dealing with a lot of multidisciplinary teams, but I'm different. I wear a different hat in some of them, so it's uh, you do understand things a little bit differently. And maybe that's my USP to a degree. But like, there's also a bit of a a weakness in there that I'm probably trying to do too much, you know. So um, there's a lot of different fingers and pies, but it's uh, it, it it definitely keeps me thinking. And it's um, you know, I mean, there's like I've uh, a brilliant child at home here. She's just absolutely active and wild, and she's brilliant. But you know, trying to balance all that stuff is is, is another challenge. You know, and you can't just do what you want all the time. I could be out all day long if you if you if I never had to think about anything else or anyone else. But um, you know, the day is not that long and there's other people need you as well. So it definitely puts a bit of manners on you. Yeah, I suppose. And just like you mentioned, you work with, with GEA teams as well. When you kind of first got involved with them, I, I don't know which one was, was first now to be specific. Did you kind of have to take a step back and realize you're de- dealing with different types of athletes than what you'd have been familiar with? Or is it more, is it more similar to studies? Because I know like you think rugby players, you, you go to like lock forwards, props. You think GEA players, you just your mind just goes to like a nippy corner forward. Like, so they're very different body builds. They are different, but I think I, I got into like amateur rugby coaching before that. So I did understand the amateur player a bit better than what I would have done if I went straight in. Um, now you're talking about elite amateur players. Like, so, you know, you, you nearly cross into professionalism at times, but they have a job in the daytime. And that was a big learning point for me that these people have to go to work first. Like, you know, and I didn't have to go to work when I was training, but you know, I think it was a bit of a cheat code for me as well in one sense, because people thought I probably knew more than I did or you do get a bit more um, respect rightly or wrongly. And I think wrongly sometimes 
not that I didn't appreciate it, but you do, you know, he played professional rugby or he was in that environment. Surely he knows. And I would have been asked my opinion on things outside of nutrition in certain environments too, which I would try to toe the line with. But, you know, you, it definitely is. a Like, I, I'm very aware that even in my private practice, like some people might have come to me in the past because they think oh, I understand the sport better. And it's not just about nutrition sometimes, but like so we all have our selling points and that's possibly one of mine. Um, I I should ask just completely tongue in cheek now in this, but you're involved with the Cork GA. When Ben O'Connor moved over to Munster Academy, was there any conversations being had? Were they looking in your direction? No, not in my direction for that. I was uh, definitely not a part of it. I'd like if he went to Cork Connor race and not go to UCC, but no, he's a uh, Ben is from my home club, like in the bars anyway. So I wouldn't have known Ben very well, but I would have. Uh, I definitely would have stayed out of it and I definitely would have been asked the question like, you know, but I wouldn't have had any, any influence at all in it. Um, and I was just watching a fella who, like I played with Darren Sweetenham who went from hurling into into rugby and unfortunately it's hard to it's hard to compete when there's a professional life ahead of him and a, and a, a career as a sports player, you know, but I, I definitely understood it and uh, seeing Sweets go through the professional pathway as well, it's very hard to, to fight with that, you know, when you're a GA team and he has to go to work and find a different career as well, but it's a, uh, you know, he's, he's done really well. He's had a really good summer with Munster and, and appearances of Munster this year. And obviously he's with the under-20s at the moment. So we'll keep an eye on him, but I definitely won't be meddling. Okay, fair enough. I, I had to ask, just for the, just for the <laughs> sake of throwing a chaos grenade in there. But just before we finish up, like you, you do regular podcasts with, with RTE and your regular columnist. Do you enjoy that side of things, kind of the punditry side? Because I know, like, obviously I, I'm doing it like at the moment with the Six Nations, but some people kind of go through their career hating the media and some people love that side of things. So how are you finding it in, in recent years? Again, it's, it's something I fell into, but I, I quite like it. Like I, I really like having an opinion that you can put out there and uh, feel some bit valued. You know, people would say to me, I read your, you might call it a blog, like when I try not to get insulted by that. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, the national broadcaster, but no, it's, um, you know, people will, will say it to me every now and then. And, you know, obviously it is being raised and, uh, and you can have a bit of a reach with something that you enjoy watching. Now, there is a bit of, there's more to it. Like, I, I don't like to bluff or spoof. So, like, I'll, I'll put myself under pressure to watch a lot of rugby, which can be tough when you've got a few different irons in the fire, you know. But um, I quite like it. I've done some commentary with, you know, schools games and Access Monster and TG Carra on stage. So, like, again, it's, it's a really challenging thing for me. I wouldn't have thought I'd ever go into anything like that. But I just enjoyed it and, and kept going, you know. So, it's... I like it, but it definitely there can be a challenge to it. And you're you're in the um the public eye as well, which was never something that sat very well at me. Like, you know, uh you get a bit more used to it, but because I'm not very much in the public eye, but it's uh you know, you you have to understand that once you put an opinion out there, it's gonna be it's gonna be scrutinized like and it has been at the pa- in the past. And I don't always I don't always get on well with that either. Like, you know, you get better at dealing with that and you think you've said nothing wrong and all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I might have gotten it a small bit wrong. Or uh, I got it. I'm absolutely right here, and they're having a meltdown for no reason. Like, but it's again, it's gone into the public forum, and you don't control what happens after that. So there's a challenge in that, but I definitely enjoy it uh, most of the time. Anyway, a good tip is to stay out of the YouTube comment sections. I know they're the ones I I usually <laughs> like to watch the RT podcast. I don't know why I'm a, I'm a visual consumer, and just stay away because it can just get a little bit unhinged very very easily. So that's a good tip. <laughs> Luckily, I didn't know that existed, but now I do. So <laughs> I would, I'd stay away. I'd definitely stay away. You could say that Ireland won by 10 and someone will argue, well, was it really a 10 point win, you know, on merit <laughs> and all that. So well, once you're not telling me that I'm on YouTube somewhere getting slated, I'd be all right about it. 
Oh, we all are. It's fine. Every single one of us. <laughs> like, you know, I know you're often on with Burger Jackman and most people agree with Birch, but he's got the slated there as well. So, Oh, don't worry. <laughs> there, was a, there was a thread recently on Twitter where, or X, I should call it these days, but like, um, we didn't, yeah, we, we were just being truthful about this current situation. Objective, I would say, as opposed to truthful. And uh, yeah, there was a long, <laughs> it was a long thing going on. And luckily he started tackling it and I just stayed away from it. But it's a, uh, it's a rabbit hole. It's a deep, deep hole that you can get stuck into. Absolutely. It's one thing that the players do better than the rest, the rest of us is that they just stay away from it half the time. They well, are far better off. Yeah, but in the media, you have to, you have, to have a presence. You know, so for yeah. Berkeley, like, yeah, I'd imagine he was replying because, you know, that keeps you in the media. Um, but unfortunately, the more you reply, the more you get. You know, I've, I've definitely seen that myself as well. Um, I had a tweet recently and all of a sudden there were things coming from all angles and I was at my sister-in-law's wedding and I decided to just turn off the notifications because I couldn't be bothered dealing with it like you know um, which I don't do actually do often I, I don't get enough to care um, but it would get to you so I, I turn off the notifications because they can be right and slate you or they can be wrong and slate you neither of them feels good so it's uh, something I tried to avoid that night anyway yeah, probably. Especially if it's something like a wedding, there's no point getting worked <laughs> yeah. up while there's while there's feel good music playing in the background. If someone wants you to dance or drink, like there's just no point for it, I suppose. But yeah. just on that to kind of wrap it up, do you see yourself kind of sticking with that in the future, or is it just kind of play it by ear? Because I know the podcasting stuff has kind of been more in the last kind of year or two than than before. So, how do you see it going? Do you think you'll stick with that? I never know the answer to that. Like even coaching as well, I don't know the answer to it. I like doing it, I suppose, is the is the reason why I do it. And luckily enough, you know, it's part of my job. But I suppose you never know. Like it, it's a when you're doing a couple of different things, it's very hard to put everything into all of them. Obviously, like you know, but um, to make it a full job takes a, a massive commitment, as you know. You know, so you have to be watching a lot of rugby, and if you want to have a real credible opinion, you do have to watch a lot of rugby, and that takes us all the times. Like so. Who knows? I like it and I'll keep going while I enjoy it. Um, and once there's opportunities there, I'll, I'll, I'll try and keep taking them. But, you know, if it goes the other way, I just maybe just uh, run with whatever happens and my nutrition is still alive and all the rest of it. So who knows? But I do enjoy it. So I'll keep going for them. The enjoyment that's the most important part for it anyway, because I know I would not be doing this if I didn't enjoy it. And it, it certainly helps when you're talking about like Munster last season and Ireland the last two years. It, it certainly helps. There's no point in shying away from that either. But once you're enjoying it, that is the main thing, especially when you're giving your opinion and there's, you know, it's, it's what you, it's the sport you enjoy. There's no point being, you know, mad for 80 minutes and then being mad for another hour during the week either. Oh, well, I'd say Chloe looks at me half the time thinking he's watching another match and I can half justify it sometimes, you know, saying I have to watch this or I need to keep an eye on this. But like, I understand it's a game that I'd be watching anyway a lot of the time, like if I, if I had free time, which isn't often. But uh, yeah, so it's, it's not too hard to get stuck into it uh, when it's a sport that you like watching. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Johnny, we'll leave it at that for today. But thank you very much for coming on. It's been it's been a really great listen. So thanks very much. No problem at all. It's good to be here. Thanks. And thanks at home to everyone for listening as well. Remember, this is just the latest edition of the series. The interviews will keep coming, but our fan-led Guinness Six Nations coverage is back as well ahead of the final two weeks of action. So thanks home to everyone for listening. If you do like what you see here, please just subscribe. And I will leave the links to some of Johnny's stuff down below if you want it. Praise his punditry and his and listen to the podcast. It is a great podcast, the RT one, I should say. It's, it's my weekly listen. But thanks very much to Johnny and to everyone at home. But for now, and until next time, take it easy. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.